Welcome to Dad Dad Diary Podcasts. My name is Steve Sorrell. I live in Ballarat in Victoria, Australia, and I've been a mineral collector for a bit over 30 years now. Where did Dad Dad Diary come from? Well, my two-year-old granddaughter calls me Dad Dad, and uh, hence the, um, the title of the website and uh, the podcasts. Not only am I a mineral collector, but I am also an artist. I paint um, pictures of, uh, of minerals, and in particular I like to do that uh, on black backgrounds because that sort of shows up the, the transparency of, of crystals and, and really gives them, makes them pop, gives them a bit of oomph. I also uh, publish a monthly mineral magazine, an electronic one, called the Monthly Mineral Chronicles. Uh, if you want to know more about that, head off to sorrellpublications.com. That's S-O-R-R-E-L-L publications.com. And details of how to access can be found there. So what's this first podcast going to be covering? Well, a number of years ago, I wrote a, a short article called Turning Red Lead into Gold. And it was the story of crocoite. Uh, and other lead minerals of Tasmania. Crocoite is Tasmania's mineral emblem. It's a beautiful orange-red crystal that uh, is a lead chromate and although first described from uh, Russia, uh, the best uh, specimens that have ever come out have been in western Tasmania, particularly in, in the mines in the Dundas region. William Frederick Pitted was a mineralogist that lived in the late 1800s, I think he died in 1910, and uh, he described crocoite thus. He said, with their superb colour, high luster and remarkably perfect crystallisation, they are the most beautiful natural objects scarcely surpassed by crystals of any other known mineral. In turning red lead into gold, I obviously took a uh, an alchemistic view of the world, as in turning lead into gold, but red lead being a common term uh, in early days for crogite. And um, so I included a number of, of definitions and phrases and quotes and whatever, uh, and I'll try and include those in this podcast. In opening, the first one that I actually uh, put in was the definition of alchemy. It's a medieval form of chemistry seeking to turn other metals into gold. And an alchemist is the name of, given to the person that actually tries to do that. The play on words uh, continued also with the turning red lead into gold. The gold in this instance being money made by mineral dealers and others that sought to mine the specimens of crocoite and then profit from uh, bringing those out into the world. Chapter 1. The Alchemist's Dream For many centuries, early scientists, known as alchemists, had a dream of turning lead into gold. It was the essential process of evolution of metals toward gold that the alchemists accelerated with the product of their labour, the lapis philosophorum, the philosopher's stone, the red powder that transmutes base metal into purest gold. That dream of the alchemists has finally come true, at least for a small number of mineral specimen miners in western Tasmania. 
Let's have a look first of all at the history of lead and lead mining. Lead has been known from very early times. Wilson, in 1994, documents what is probably the earliest known collecting of a lead mineral, that of a group of specimens found buried at the foot of an inscribed rock wall in, at Cap Blanc in France. The group includes samples of chalcedony, galena, rock quartz and pebbles, and has been dated to about 17,000 years ago. And of course galena is a lead sulphide. During the time of the Israelites, there was no exact distinction made between the metals lead and tin. Pliny, however, distinguishes between them. He gave the name plumbum nigrum to lead and plumbum candidum to tin. Lead was also known to the ancient Egyptians, with lead plates having been found in the temple of Ramesses III, and the Romans worked the lead mines of Britain as early as the 1st century AD. Lead was also the first metal mined in Australia. It was mined in the Glen Osmond Hills on the outskirts of Adelaide in South Australia in 1841, and was followed by the discovery of lead in the bed of the Murchison River in Western Australia. The earliest recorded discovery of, of a lead mineral in Tasmania was of the sulphide galena at Norfolk Plains in 1849 and in mountain limestone at Franklin River in 1851. These were apparently unimportant discoveries and it wasn't until about 1870 that the first practical mining for silver lead occurred at Penguin on the north coast. Other discoveries followed at Waratah by the Bischoff Silver Lead Company in 1876, near Scamander on the east coast in 1880, and then the most important discovery of all made by Frank Long at Zeehan in 1882. Exploration of the west coast of Tasmania intensified, resulting in important discoveries of other metal mines. Mount Lyle, gold and copper in 1886, tin at Renison in 1890, and then copper, lead and zinc at Rosebury in 1893. More recent times have seen the discovery of other base metal sulphide deposits Q River in 1974 and Hellier in 1983. Lead minerals are also known to occur in many other localities around the state. So there you have it, a brief history of lead and lead mining. Now let's have a look at turning red lead into gold. Each of the seven metals known to the ancients were supposed to be connected in some way with the seven heavenly bodies known to belong to our solar system. Among these alchemists, dull and heavy lead was apportioned to Saturn and astrologically connected with the planet. Crocoite, also known as red lead, although heavy, can certainly not be called dull. It is the lustrous orange and red prismatic crystals of this rare mineral that have helped mineral specimen miners to achieve the alchemist's dream, that of turning lead into gold. The Dundas region of Western Tasmania has produced, and continues to produce, the world's best crogoite specimens. Roger Bacon said, Alchemy therefore is a science teaching how to make and compound a certain medicine, which is called elixir, the which, when it is cast upon metals or imperfect bodies, does fully perfect them in the very projection. Chapter 2. William Frederick Petterd William Frederick Petterd was a Tasmanian scientist noted especially for his contributions to our knowledge of the natural history of Tasmania, particularly mineralogy. 
He had amongst his friends notable people such as William Harper Twelvetrees, the government geologist, W.F. Ward, the government chemist, William Robert Bell, prospector and mining speculator, and James Philosopher Smith, discoverer of, of the Mount Bischoff tin load. Petter named new species, some of which are still valid today. These are Dundasite, Hazelwoodite and Stitchsite. His efforts were often a driving force in the development of the Tasmanian silver lead mining fields and he was the chairman of directors of the Magnet Silver Mining Company, a position he held from its inception in 1895 up until the time of his death in 1910. Crocolite was an important and very special mineral for Petterd. In his article, The Minerals of Tasmania, he tells us of welcome additions to the cabinet of the collector. He said, The mineral which has rendered this state famous among collectors in all parts of the world is the inimitable crocoasite, especially that obtained some few years back at the Adelaide mine in Dundas. Its intensely bright hyacinth red colour, prismatic habit and adamantine luster render it one of the most attractive objects in the mineral world, and it has, consequently, been most eagerly sought after by all who admire nature's handiwork. Crocoasite, C-R-O-C-O-I-S-I-T-E, is an old term for crocoite, C-R-O-C-O-I-T-E. The standard reference for collectors of Tasmanian minerals has, since its publication, been Petterd's Catalogue of the Minerals of Tasmania, first published just after his death in 1910 and revised by the Tasmania Department of Mines in 1969. During the 1990s and early 2000s, updates containing details of minerals new to the state, new data and amendments were published in the Journal of the Mineralogical Society of Tasmania. A new revision of the catalogue was published in 2008 as the Tasmanian Geological Survey Bulletin 73. It was pulled together by Ralph Bottrell and Bill Baker. Bill had been the driving force behind the 1969 edition, but didn't receive the recognition deserved for all of his hard work. The latest edition writes that. The 2008 edition of the catalogue not only describes the occurrence of all minerals found in the state of Tasmania up until that particular point in time, but was also the first to include colour photographs. Of course, it's already out of date. Petard's first catalogue, titled Catalogue of the Minerals Known to Occur in Tasmania, with notes on their distribution, was published in the Papers and Proceedings of the Royal Society of Tasmania for 1893. His introduction to the catalogue gives us an insight into his special interest with and approach to the collection and identification of minerals especially those from Tasmania. That introduction follows. The following catalogue of the minerals known to occur and recorded from this island is mainly prepared from specimens contained in my own collection and in the majority of instances I have verified the identifications by careful qualitative analysis. It cannot claim any originality of research or even accuracy of detail but as the, as the material has been so rapidly accumulating during the past few years, I have thought it well to place on record the result of my personal observation and collecting, which, with information gleaned from authentic sources, may, I trust, at least pave the way for a more elaborate compilation by a more capable authority. 
I have purposely curtailed my remarks on the various species so as to make them as concise as possible and to reduce the bulk of the matter. As an amateur, I think I may fairly claim the indulgence of the professional or other critics, for I feel sure that my task has been very inadequately performed in proportion to the importance of the subject, one not only fraught with deep scientific interest on account of the multitude of questions arising from the occurrence and deposition of the minerals themselves, but also from the great economic results of our growing mining industry. My object has been more to give some information on this subject to the general student of nature, to point out the large and varied field of observation open to him, than to instruct the more advanced mineralogist. Our minerals present a somewhat remarkable and interesting admixture of species, many of which are usually looked upon by mineralogists as restricted to certain well-known and recorded localities, such as crocoasite and volquelonite, which have until recently been considered as almost peculiar to the mining districts of Siberia. Two of our comparatively common forms, zaratite and huastalite, have scarcely been recorded outside their original localities in North America, while matlockite and leadhillite are well-known British minerals, and pleonast and zircon are abundant in Ceylon. This association of species would appear to some extent to confirm the existence of areas of great economic value containing the same metallic and other minerals that are characteristic of the older and better known mining countries. A comparison of the number of mineral species herein enumerated with the catalogues that have been compiled for those known to occur in the various Australasian colonies may be of some interest, as illustrating in a forcible degree the mineral wealth of this island. Notwithstanding its restricted area and the paucity of investigators in the Special Department of Science, it will be found in New South Wales about 185 species have been discovered, according to Liversidge in Minerals of New South Wales, and also the report of the second meeting of the Australasian Association for the Advancements of Science in 1890. In South Australia about 100, and Queensland about 101, and New Zealand about 172. Those latter ones were also in the uh, report of the Australasian Association for the Advancement of Science. The report of the association is not as yet completed, as it does not contain a census of those known to occur in either Victoria or Western Australia. The former may reasonably be expected to enumerate about 100 species. From a somewhat careful examination of the various catalogues that have been published, it may be fairly concluded that this island contains as many mineral forms as have been discovered throughout the whole of mainland of Australia. Of the minerals that have been discovered here, about 40 kinds have not been recorded as occurring in Australia. It will be found that the catalogue not only includes a large majority of the world's economic minerals, such as representatives of the gold, silver, iron, nickel, cobalt, wolfram, bismuth, titanium, lead, copper and platinoid groups, but also many species of considerable scientific interest, one or two of which are apparently new chemical compounds. So far, no members of the selenium, tellurium or uranium groups have been discovered, 
but there is apparently no reason why they should not exist. Their discovery may therefore be reasonably expected as the work of the prospector progresses. I have to thank my esteemed friends Mrs James Smith and W.R. Bell, both well-known names in mineral discovery, for much kindly help and valuable information regarding the occurrence of many of the minerals here enumerated, and to Mr A. Morton, I am under great obligation for assistance in many ways. Phew, that was a bit of a mouthful. That Petard was able to correctly identify many, many of the minerals in his catalogue is testimony to his great skills, particularly when you consider that he was a gifted self-taught amateur, that many of the minerals are of similar composition and appearance, and the fact that he didn't have access to many of the tools of modern-day mineralogists. Petard bequeathed his collection of some 2,500 mineral specimens to the Royal Society of Tasmania, who loaned it to the trustees of the then Tasmanian Museum and Botanical Gardens for a period of 999 years. His collection not only forms the basis of the collection of minerals in the Tasmanian Museum Hobart, but it is an important and in some cases it is the only link with the minerals that were produced during the peak period of mining activity in this state. It is the Petard collection that has provided us with the foundation of our knowledge of Tasmanian minerals, and although it has not always been treated with appropriate care and respect, and that is some specimens have either gone missing or have been accidentally destroyed, it must be properly protected into the future. While I was living in Tasmania, I did find out at one stage that a number of sulphide specimens in particular from the Petard collection were loaned out to a, a geologist and unfortunately were stored in a, uh, an inappropriate area underneath a building at the, uh, the University of Tasmania and consequently just became a, a pile of mush. So those specimens, apart from a few of the labels, have just gone. The reference to specimens that have gone missing is really to do with specimens that are no longer in the museum. Uh, the boxes, the numbers just don't exist anymore when compared to the catalogue. And I think that comes down to some individuals that had access to the collection 30, 40, 50 years ago, whatever it was, and um, appropriated them in some way or another. And it's an unfortunate fact of life that sometimes these things happen but we, we lose part of the history of the collection uh, when these things do occur. And to finish off this chapter, just say that William Frederick Pittard, with his catalogue, his collection, and his keen interest and scientific curiosity, was truly the father of mineralogy in the state of Tasmania. Chapter 3. Lead Minerals in Tasmania much of Western Tasmania was traversed by famous early explorers such as Hellyer, Franklin and James Sprint, but they were not searching for minerals. It wasn't until the late 1850s that Charles Gould, son of John Gould, the renowned naturalist, began the first of three trips to the West. The primary objective of Gould, as the government geologist, his party and indeed the government of the day, was to find payable gold and other mineral wealth to try and stem the tide of Tasmanian men leaving for the Victorian gold rushes. 
His first trip resulted in no gold being found, but certainly added to the overall knowledge of the geography of the west coast. His second and third trips resulted in gold finding traces of copper, lead and gold, but not in payable quantities. The west coast was essentially ignored as far as further official exploration was concerned, at least until James Philosopher Smith discovered the great tin deposit at Mount Bischoff, Waratah, in 1871. Smith's discovery sparked a resurgence in mineral exploration in the West, with fields such as Heemskirk, tin, zeon, silver lead, and Lyle, copper and gold, being opened up. Even though lead minerals occur in many parts of the island, they are most abundant on the West Coast. They occur in silver lead deposits such as those at Zeon and Dundas, massive sulphide ore bodies such as Kew River, Hellia and Rosebury, in Skarns, hydrothermal vein systems and around the perimeter of granitic intrusions. One of the most famous mining districts in Tasmania is that of the Zeon Dundas region. We are lucky to have such a rich mining history in Tasmania, particularly in areas such as this. The upcoming part of this chapter contains a brief history of both Zeon and Dundas. Included are two extracts from early editions of the Zeon and Dundas Herald, the region's newspaper, for around 25 years. I'm also indebted to Carl Bjorklund of Hobart for much of the other information. Carl carried out research from this region for the 1995 Joint Mineralogical Society seminar hosted by the Mineralogical Society of Tasmania. The Zeon Dundas mineral field is justly famous for producing the world's best crogite. Found at most of the Dundas mines, the most notable specimens having originated from the Adelaide, the Red Lead and the West Comet mines. Minor producers included the Capai, the Platt slash Kosminski prospects and the Dundas extended mine. Of the 11 mineral species first described from Tasmania, six are from this region, and five of those are lead-bearing minerals. Dundasite is a, a lead and aluminium carbonate, named after the township of Dundas, and found mainly at the Adelaide Mine, which is a type locality, and the Capai Mine at northeast Dundas. Petodite is a lilac-coloured lead chromium carbonate and was named for William Frederick Petterd and approved in 2000. Phillips Bornite is a lead aluminium arsenate described as a new species by Walenta, Zwiner and Dunn in 1982, and the type locality possibly being the Adelaide mine. Reynoldsite is a lead manganese chromate and was approved as a new mineral species in 2011. And finally, Shandite, a lead and nickel sulphide, first identified as a new species by Ramdor in 1949 from a nickel prospect at Trial Harbour, which is just down the road from Zeon. Now let's have a look at the Zeon district. In the late 1880s and early 1900s, the region was an important producer firstly of silver, then of lead. Frank Long pegged off the first section of the Zeon field at his new discovery of Galena up what is now known as Peasoup Creek during December 1882. The ores of the Zeon field are usually argentiferous with Long's ore samples assaying 75% lead and 80 ounces of silver to the tonne. During the silver boom period, Zeon boasted its own stock exchange, a number of hotels, its own newspaper, the Zeon and Dundas Herald, 
the School of Mines, now a museum, and two theatres. Dame Nellie Melba once performed at one of these, the Gaiety, which is still standing today. The old Zeehan School of Mines building houses, apart from much memorabilia, an excellent mineral collection. In particular, it contains the Mihailovich collection, which includes some of the finest crocoite specimens produced in recent times. Little work was carried out on this field until 1893, after the opening of the railway from the nearby port town of Strawn. Smelting works were put up on a large scale by a German company in 1899, and for some years they treated, treated large quantities of ore. On the rocks by 1907, the company was given government assistance of £20,000, but this was to no avail, as they finally closed in 1913. The total production to 1926 was about 5 million tonnes of Argentiferous galena from around 300 mines and prospects. Principal producing mines were the Silver Queen, the Western, which was the richest mine on the field, the Zeehan Western, the deepest mine at about 300 metres, the Oceana, Una, Montana, Florence and Comstock. Many of the mines were shallow, with the richest being mined simply by driving horizontal edits into the hillside. The varied mineralogy includes a number of sulphur salts, silver chlorides and stannite, amongst others. Mr G. D. Gibson, a special mining correspondent, provided an introduction to the region in the Zeehan and Dundas Herald on Tuesday, October the 14th, 1890. Although this and subsequent articles were probably written with a view to attracting much-needed investment, the information contained in them is historically important and unavailable elsewhere. He wrote that the West Coast silver fields of Zeehan and Dundas constitute the most important mineral area that has recently been discovered in any part of Australasia, the barrier silver field alone accepted, must be admitted by all who have had an opportunity or are competent to form a reliable opinion. This being the case, it is with very great pleasure and no small feeling of responsibility that I now undertake the duty of presenting to the world, through the columns of the Herald, accurate accounts of the condition and progress of the various mines and prospects of the field generally. In doing so, it may be necessary to go over a good deal of ground in the way of furnishing details that may not locally be considered as news, but it must be remembered that the mining matter is compiled with the express view of imparting information to readers at a distance, so that those who have not had an opportunity of visiting the field may be enabled to form correct ideas as to the merits of the different mines and of the field as a whole. This is a very important matter because for the speedy and proper development of the mineral resources of the district, the introduction of foreign capital is very necessary, and investors and speculators in the Australian cities as well as in Tasmania look for regular and faithful reports from the seat of the action. These have not hitherto been readily obtainable, consequently but little is known about the field at a distance. However, by doing my best in the interest of my employers, I trust that I shall at the same time be doing a service for the benefit of all connected with the West Coast mineral fields. Of the ultimate great success of the Zeehan and Dundas silver field, I have not the slightest doubt, and the recent discoveries in the latter portion of the field helped to bring the whole into prominence, as owing to the mountainous character of that district, 
works of development can be pushed on in a great number of the mines without the necessity of obtaining machinery to cope with the water. Had it not been for the extreme difficulty in conveying heavy machinery to the spot, the Zeean portion of the field would long ere be now have asserted its importance in a more pronounced manner. I was surprised to see how much had already been accomplished in the way of permanent work on many of the mines, and consider that it speaks well for the courage and enterprise of the directors and shareholders in these companies. The introduction of English capital will do a great deal for the development of mining in Tasmania, and in this the Zeean portion of the field is so far fortunate in having two powerful English companies pre presently carrying on mining operations in a systematic manner with a view to permanent development. A glance at the works being carried out on the Mount Zeean Tasmania Silver Mine Company's properties will show that business is intended and in due course I shall have the pleasure of furnishing your readers with a full and detailed account of these. At the Tasmanian SM Company's mine, usually known as McLean's, the other English company referred to, matters are not so far advanced, but plans have been prepared for the permanent working of the property, a commencement to sink a main shaft having been made. In connection with the Grubb SM Company, the important work of constructing a tramway three miles in length through some very heavy country to connect with the government line to Macquarie Harbour has begun. While at the Silver King and the Silver Queen mines, permanent works are being proceeded with in the way of the erection of pumping and winding machinery, besides some important prospecting work on the latter. On the Mount Zeer mine, underground developmental and prospecting works are being steadily carried on, as also at the Silver Bell, the Comstock and other mines. At Balstrup's Manganese Hill, the Manganese Hill and the Manganese Hill East, the work of tunnelling is being vigorously prosecuted with a view to testing the existence of large bodies of ore or otherwise underneath the immense capping of manganic iron from which the properties derive their names. I say the existence or otherwise because although from the indications already obtained I have little or no fear of disappointing results but the fact of large deposits of ore existing has yet to be proved. However, on another occasion, I shall take an opportunity of discussing the merits of this line of country, which possesses peculiarities of its own, distinct from any other in the district. Although the number of loads traceable on the surface is legion, to say nothing of those, the existence of which is altogether unknown, there can be traced at least four distinct parallels coursing, roughly speaking, northwest, southeast. Between these are found quite a network of loads running at a variety of angles and underlying in different directions. That these form cross loads I do not think likely. It is more probable that in depth they will be found to merge and form a lesser number conforming generally with the prevailing strike. That silver lead, commonly called galena, will be the class of ore forming the mainstay of the district, there can be little doubt. Although in the case of the Silver Queen oxidised formations, Balstrups and other instances, where the ground is high, carbonate ore may be found to predominate. The galena of the district is most unusually high in silver, as also is the carbonate and oxidised ores, although it is a remarkable fact that both at Zeean and Dundas that silver in any visible form, such as native or as chloride, is but rarely seen. 
In another article, I shall deal more fully with the Dundas portion of the field, which promises to be a very extensive, rich and extremely interesting one. If the government could be prevailed on to push ahead at once with the continuation of the Zeehan Railway to Dundas, there would soon be profitable occupation in that district for ten times the number of men now employed. In a word, I have not the slightest doubt but that the West Coast silver fields will do as much for Tasmania as the barrier has done for Australia. In fact, in proportion to the population, a very great deal more. I do not for a moment anticipate that any one mine will be found to equal the Great Broken Hill Mine in extent, but it is clear to be seen that the good things of nature are more widely and more equally distributed, and thus calculated to promote a larger amount of general welfare. Coming to Tasmania as a stranger, I cannot but congratulate the prospectors of this field and the investors in the West Coast stock on the persevering manner in which the mineral resources of the district have been opened up in the face of almost overwhelming difficulties and in spite of heedless neglect on part of the government. Gibson certainly did his best to encourage investment in the Zeehan and Dundas district. Now let's have a closer look at Dundas itself. The Dundas township was smaller than Zeehan, and today only ruins remain. That is, apart from Mike and Eleanor Phelan, Dundas's only residence. It is situated some 12 kilometres east of Zeehan in the western foothills of Mount Dundas. Mining activity in the Dundas district began soon after Frank Long's discovery at Zeehan. From Zeehan, prospectors spread out into the surrounding countryside, searching every hill and valley for silver lead ore. Some of them reached Dundas and soon found silver-bearing ironstone cappings of lead ore de deposits. Nearly all of the known ore bodies in the area were discovered by the early prospectors and some were explored at depth by way of shaft and adit. The first lease was pegged in this district by G. Lambie in 1887, with the first galena being discovered on New Year's Day in 1889 by Lambie and J. Davies. When Montgomery, the government geologist, visited the field in 1889, a large area had already been pegged out but very little development had taken place. Dundas was linked to Zeehan by road not long after, and over the next few years a branch line was constructed from the Zeehan Strawn Railway. This served the Adelaide, West Comet and Comet Maestries mines and was later extended by tramway to the Great South Comet Mine. Now here's a bit of detail about some of the individual mines. First of all, the Comet Maestries. Situated about 1.6 kilometres east of the town of Dundas, the Comet leases were first pegged in 1888 by W. Johnston and J. Carnahan respectively. Early in 1889, J. Maestry and P. Bear found canary ore, mainly sericite, and pegged two leases to the east of the Comet claim. The ore body that they found contained an oxidised zone that extended to a depth of 120 metres. The secondary minerals, mainly sericite, crocoite, and with large concentrations of silver chloride, are remarkable for their beauty. In 1895, the Maestry leases were let on tribute and sold outright in 1900 to the Comet Silver Mining Company. They in turn ceased operations in 1904, but the mine was worked for several years by tributors. From 1905 until 1913, the mine was worked mainly by open cut 
for the ferromanganese gossen, which was used as a flux by the Tasmanian smelting company at Zeehan. Next, the West Comet mine. Other than the Comet Maestries, the West Comet produced more silver and lead than any other mine in the Dundas field. Formerly known as the Mount Dundas Mine, or the Dundas Prospecting Association, and the Central Dundas Mine, in 1896 the two companies amalgamated to form the West Comet Mine. The main load was found to be six, 16 to 22 metres in width and over 180 metres in length and appears to be a continuation of the Adelaide Mine and the Andersons Prospect. Crocoite was the main secondary mineral that outcropped and rich shoots of silver chloride and galena occurred within the load. By 1903 only the richest ore, galena, was marketable. Subsequently, this mine too was operated for flux for the smelters. The Kosminski Mine The Kosminski Mine is situated between the Comet Maestries and the South Comet Mines. First pegged in 1890 by James Davis, it was taken over by Abraham Kosminski later that same year. Two parallel ore bodies composed of galena, sphalerite, quartz, siderite, pyrite and minor chalcopyrite commence at South Comet Creek which marks the northern end of the Great South Comet load, and are a probable faulted continuation of that load. Despite having no less than 11 lessees operating over a 50-year period, being opened by adits on three levels and followed by a shaft, the total output is estimated at only 20 tonnes, containing 480 ounces of silver and 10 tonnes of lead. The Adelaide Mine. This is one of the uh, the current mines producing quite a bit of, uh, of good crocoite for the mineral collector around the world. This is situated about two, two and a half kilometres southeast of the Dundas Township and the area was taken up by T. Anderson in 1890 and acquired the following year by the Adelaide Proprietary Silver Mining Company. By 1893 a good deal of tunnelling had been done without much result. In 1895 the mine closed down. From 1897, the mine passed through successive hands until in 1908, a third level was opened. There was some ore production up until 1915, when the mine again closed. Since 1957, the Adelaide mine has been worked primarily for specimen material. The Adelaide loads show prominent surface gossen, and oxidation extends over 100 metres below the surface. They resemble the Comet and Maestries loads, except for the development of large masses of crocoite due to the proximity of an ultra-basic intrusion. In the upper part of the ferromanganese gossen, crocoite is the chief component, but sericite, dundasite, phosgenite, minium and binheimite are not uncommon. Below the zone of oxidation, the ore consists of galena, sphalerite, pyrite and jamesonite, in a gang of manganese siderite, dolomite and serpentine. The Anderson mine lies between the West Comet and the Adelaide mines and is situated on a continuation of the Adelaide load. At the surface, the ore body consists of gossen, manganese oxides and quartz and is encased in serpentine. Dump material reveals the presence of crocoite, which according to reports, occurs in considerable abundance at a depth of 15 metres. In 1911, the mine was purchased by the uh, then owners of the adjoining Adelaide mine. The Red Lead Mine Situated on the south side of Adelaide Hill, adits have been driven on a ferromanganese load containing crocoite and minium. 
No rich bodies of ore were discovered in these exploratory works, and the costs of mining and transport were too great to allow for profitable operation. Since the late 1960s, the red lead has been worked for crocoite specimen material. The Platt Prospect. This property is situated at the eastern boundary of the West Comet and south of the Comet Mine. In 1925, it was held under prospector's license by Charles Platt. The load consists of galena, sphalerite, jamsonite, crocoite and sericite in a ferro-manganese gossen and quartz. It contains a fair proportion of crocoite and some binheimite rich in silver. In recent years, small-scale specimen mining has produced attractive crocoite and pyromorphite associations. And the final mine in the Dundas area, the Great South Comet Mine. This property is situated south of the adjoining Kosminski lease, about five kilometres from the Dundas Township. The area was first leased in 1911 and held by various interests over the next 20 years. The loads consist essentially of galena and sphalerite, with minor amounts of jamesonite, pyrite and chalcopyrite. The galena and sphalerite occur in distinct bands with no inter intergrowth. A flotation plant was constructed in 1927 to recover lead and zinc, but was not operated successfully. In 1948, the Kunai Mining Company commenced construction of an access road and concentrating mill. Some ore was produced in 1949, but the lease was again abandoned in 1950. The mine was operated in the 1980s by Mintec Proprietary Limited, and the bridge over Comet Creek rebuilt and the road upgraded. During this time, ore was trucked to the EZ Pasminko plant at Rosebury for processing. Mr. G.D. Gibson's second major article appeared in the Zeehan and Dundas Herald Friday, October the 17th, 1890, and provided an early description of the Mount Dundas district, where he again displays his irritation with the government of the day. Nothing changes really, does it? He wrote, In your first issue, I confined my introductory remarks to the existing condition of the Zeehan portion of the field, which it was shown is making steady progress of a substantial kind in the face of many difficulties that have to be contended with. It was also shown that recent discoveries clearly indicated the necessity for a more thorough system of prospecting on many of the properties now lying idle, a subject on which the special reports following in this issue have a special bearing. It cannot be denied that for, but for the very important discoveries made at Mount Dundas, very much less vitality would have been manifested on the field generally than at present exists. However sterling or solid may be the merits of the silver lead mines of Zeehan, they lack, as a rule, that romantic fascination appertaining to great possibilities such as the Australian public so dearly love, and which seem to lend an indescribable zest to mining speculation. It may be objected that the speculative element is not desirable, I venture to say that if mining business was wholly bereft of such a potent stimulant, then the industry would languish and public interest would decay. The prospector would no longer find an incentive to undergo the voluntary hardships which he imposes on himself, and much of the mineral wealth of the world, in which Australasia has so largely participated, would still remain concealed in nature's treasure house. The Mount Dundas district literally teems with possibilities, and offers most tempting attractions to the prospector, the speculator, and the investor alike. Nor does this state of matters exist without reason. 
the pessimist may declare that he fails to see anything to warrant placing so much reliance on the prospective value of the great ironstone outcrops which form the leading characteristic of the district, but substantial indications are not a wanting of the great mineral wealth contained below. Take for instance the maestries. Beyond the ironstone cropping, no surface indication of silver or lead were to be found. It was only on panning off the wash in the creek that the attention of the prospectors was arrested by the crystals of carbonate of lead remaining in the dish. This induced them to drive into the hill on the ironstone, which almost immediately led to the discovery of an important ore body consisting of an oxidised ore, carbonate of lead, galena and picos. The existence of the same load has been proved in the comet ground, but unfortunately where struck, the ore body does not rise much above the water level as governed by the creek. To the south, similar indications on other lines of loads are to be found, notably the south section of the comet, the Koiminski sections, the Melbourne Proprietary, Wrights and others. To the north, favourable indications are likewise to be found, and likewise to the east and to the west, parallel loads have been discovered bearing equally promising characteristics. There is a large extent of country both to the north and to the south, which as yet I have not had opportunities of visiting, but of which good accounts are being daily received, and I hope soon to be able to personally inspect and report on the merits of these localities. Some very rich samples of silver glance, sulfuret of silver, and antimonial silver ore have recently been brought in from the northern district. From these, sensationally high assay returns have been obtained and naturally caused quite a rush of prospectors to the vines. Large tracts of new country have been taken up, but owing to its present inaccessibility, it will be some time before it can be opened up. In this matter, the government are sadly behind. There is now no prospecting vote in Tasmania, but really the government ought to do something more for the assistance of prospectors who are expending their time and labour in opening up the country. These are the men who are helping to develop the mineral resources of the country from which the state derives a substantial benefit, as every additional block of ground that is taken up adds so much to the revenue. But while prospectors are enduring all sorts of hardships and privations for the enrichment of the country at large, is it right that the state should do nothing for them? The roads of the district are in a disgraceful condition. I would strongly urge on the public that pressure be brought to bear on the government so as to have the formation of the track from Zeehan to Dundas pushed on with a little more speed. It is badly required and the opening up of the district is being shamefully handicapped and retarded on account of the delay in the completion of the track. After all, it will only be a makeshift, the corduroy being in only 10 feet lengths and consequently not wide enough to allow of two carts passing. However, on the principle that half a loaf is better than no bread, we would accept the track such as it is, only the cry is, do let us have it without delay. Now let's have a quick look at the Karuna Waratah district. Apart from the Zee and Dunnes area, the only other verified occurrences of crocoite in Tasmania are from the Hazelwood, White River and Magnet Mines, plus a couple of minor occurrences elsewhere, located along the Karuna to Waratah Road. Crocoite is also being found at Luina, which is a tin mining area. 
The Hazelwood mine is the type locality for crocoite in Tasmania and was first described from this mine around 1890. The Hazelwood mine was rediscovered by members of the Mineralogical Society of Tasmania in January 1999 and a few specimens containing crocoite were found on the dumps. The magnet mine is situated some 7 kilometres west of Waratah. Discovered in 1891 by W.R. Bell, who also took out the first lease, it was in operation through to 1940. At its peak between 1910 and 1920, the magnet mine was rated as the third largest mine in Tasmania, behind Mount Bischoff, the Mountain of Tin, and the Great Mount Lyle. At this time, the magnet township supported a population of around 700, but now, like Dundas and so many other mining townships, little remains. Crocoite reportedly occurred as slender prismatic deep red crystals to 5 cm in length. It can still be found as small red or orange crystals up to about 1 cm long in Gossen, although it is becoming increasingly more difficult to locate. The magnet mine is currently designated as a fossicking reserve. And just a quick note on other localities that have lead-bearing minerals. Lead minerals can be found in many parts of the state. Most of the important areas are in the north and the west, and include the Mount Reed Volcanic Belt, which houses the Hercules, Hellier, Kew River, Rosebury, Farrell and Tuller Mines, and the central north region, which has Penguin, Hampshire and Moena. In the northeast, silver lead deposits occur in the Scamander area, although they are generally small, and many of the tin-bearing mines also host lead minerals. In the south of the state, galena and sericite occur as minor constituents in gold mines in the Signet district. In part two of this podcast, we'll look at the brief geology of the areas, and we'll look at um, crocoite in particular, we have much more of a focus on that, and some of the, the people involved, the miners, the middlemen, and the maniacs, that's the collectors that have a, an orange-red fetish with crocoite, uh, as well as looking at some of the other lead minerals that occur in the state of Tasmania. So stay tuned for that one.